Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright here with Carrie Plitt, who's joining me down the line from Oxford. Hi, <laughs> Carrie. How are you doing? Hi, Octavia. I'm in Oxford. That's where you are. Yeah, and it is mid-August when we're recording this, and things are pretty quiet at work in particular, which hasn't happened for the last two years, and I am loving it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's good. And I'm going on holiday soon, so I'm in a good mood. How about that you? is a good thing. Holidays are always good. I'm good. I'm really enjoying life out of the tunnel. I've been working on a bunch of different stuff, all small projects that I can finish easily, which is <laughs> like a real treat after the book. And I'm, I'm enjoying having a break from my own words before I go back and tear it apart with my green pen in a few weeks for the next round of edits. And I'm getting ready to go up to Edinburgh for the festival where I'm chairing some some great events with some really fantastic writers. So that's exciting. And I've just been reading and reading and yeah, it's been good. And also I I had this realization, which I, I'm going to say here because I, a few listeners have been in touch in the last year to say that they um, have also lost parents and stuff. And I just wanted to check in about that because I realized that I've started to feel excited properly again. And it means that the grief is moving into a different phase and I think that that's really hopeful for anyone who's maybe in the thick of it, because it's not that it goes away, but it just recedes. And sometimes other things can then take its place and it just has a different rhythm to it. And I've been able to feel connected to dad through the good feelings rather than just through the sadness of him not being around. And that's like quite a powerful experience. I'm really glad to hear that. And also that you can synthesize the happiness as part of the grieving process, because um, I know that can be sometimes it's hard to let go of the sadness. Yeah, definitely. I think it is. And I think it's probably much harder if you've lost somebody suddenly, but losing someone as slowly as as I did my dad because of his illness. I think that transition has been less of a challenge for me because it had been happening for so long before he died already. But yeah, it's just a hopeful thing to hold in mind that that it can change and that it will change, you know? Well, thank you for sharing. And... I don't know how to segue out of that, but <laughs> let's get business out of the way. <laughs> Carry business plit. Let's do it. <laughs> if you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You also get access to an extra mini-sode each month and you'll have the chance to suggest themes. That's right. And this month's Patreon mini-sode is also out today. And the theme is book lists, which was recommended by a patron, Elka. Patrons, thank you as ever for your wonderful support. It is the reason that we can keep making the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you. But now back to mini-sode 33. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. I feel like we already said welcome, but thank you. Super welcome. <laughs> The format for these mini-sodes between full shows is for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation. It's always an hour, by the way. We need to change that. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to try for 45 minutes this time, so see see how we do. We will have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately. That's absolutely right. And this month, the theme is correspondence, which was suggested by a patron, Liza, who I really love the way she put it. She described it as semi-adjacent to our diaries episode. And I think, you know, there is a kind of correspondence that actually is a bit like diary writing. I mean, long WhatsApp monologues, I'm looking at you. <laughs> but it's such a rich topic to get into because 
we are corresponding with each other all the time. I feel like more now than ever in my life, I'm constantly writing to people in a thousand different ways. But also there's lots to talk about in terms of literature. There's a lot of great correspondence in many, many books, nonfiction and fiction alike. Liza in her suggestion mentioned Chris Krause's I Love Dick in particular, which I'm going to bang on about later. Um, But it also, yeah, it got us thinking about the role of correspondence in our own lives. And Carrie, you are one of my most frequent correspondees, I would say, (laughs) but we'll get to that. (laughs) But let's start with a really simple opener. So do you like to write and receive letters? And what about emails? And are they the same or different? Yeah, so in theory, I like to write and receive letters and emails, but in practice, I hardly ever do it. And it and it makes me sad because I I sometimes think about how few physical traces I actually have of my relationships with other people. And I think that's one thing that letters can be is just a kind of record of a friendship or a relationship. And and also because letters and emails are so fun to read over. I mean, they're fun to receive and they're fun to write, but they're also fun to revisit and think about the person you were or the relationship that you had at the time. And I'm much more likely to write an email. I still do write emails, especially to friends who I don't see as often. I did it a lot in college, actually, with my high school friends. We wrote each other emails all the time. But I've fallen off a bit. And, and I think that's because it is so easy to text with people. It's so easy to WhatsApp. And I think WhatsApping has really replaced emails in my life. And I'm not necessarily happy about that. I think one of the reasons for that is I always have felt more comfortable speaking off the cuff because I'm critical of my own prose and I edit and re-edit it and always end up feeling kind of uncomfortable with it. And if I'm just speaking or typing off the cuff, I don't have time to be upset about how poorly I'm phrasing things. How about you? Well, yeah, I mean, nothing beats a good letter, does it? I feel the same way as you about how magical it is to have those physical traces and those reminders. I have a few letters that I have kept from years and years ago that mean the absolute world to me. And if, God forbid, my flat burnt down, I'd be devastated about them, the loss of them, probably more than any of the other material belongings I I have, actually. And I think, you know, I... I love to hold things in my hands. I'm a very tactile person, but also I'm someone who has very little object permanence. <laughs> Essentially, I've got, there's some incredible writing in my email inbox from years and years ago as well, from old relationships or friendships and people who live far away. But I don't remember uh, where they are in my email, what, how to find them. Whereas with a box of letters, I can look through it and be reminded and forget that I have them, but I know that in the box, that's where all the letters are. And there's something about that that I find really helpful because my memory doesn't work like a filing cabinet. Although I made the decision a few house moves ago to get rid of my box of love letters from my first love because I was lugging them around and they were so meaningful at the time and some of them are beautiful, but I also felt like I didn't need them anymore. Um, And it was really, really cathartic to let them go. It was like a beautiful thing. I wouldn't do that. Really? I hold on to stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, which is funny because I'm, I'm not precious about things. What's, there's a word for that. I don't know. Materialistic. Materialistic. That's not quite the right word. Like I, I don't place a lot of value and symbolism on objects, but I would never get rid of any significant letters that anyone wrote to me. Really? Yeah. Fascinating. Because you never know where you're going to be at another time in your life. 
Yeah, but I felt like for that one, it was very much a way of letting go of a part of um, my life that I, you know, I treasure it in my heart, but I don't need the physical reminder anymore. It felt like baggage, actually. Mm. And it was very liberating to let it go. It was just a wonderful, it felt like a, a kind of spiritual um, ritual. I burnt them, not in anger at all, but because I didn't want them to be read by anybody else in the trash can. <laughs> but um, it felt it felt like a very beautiful letting go, and it felt like a kind of acknowledgement that 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 love and me are in very different parts of our lives now, and we've evolved into different people. And yeah, I didn't feel the need to hold on to them anymore, but I do hold on to other letters, and I've got some of the most meaningful ones to me are actually from old friendships, some friendships which haven't stood the test of time even, but those are really significant because they don't feel in any way, like they're tangled up in the projection of somebody's romantic fantasy about me. They feel like they're grounded in who that person was and who I was at the time, which is very, very meaningful. And I also have some letters from my dad that now mean the world because he's no longer around. Hmm. And I think the thing with that, whereas, I mean, my father wrote terrible emails. He, he never really got his head around email. He couldn't be bothered. He just sent me like three letters or th- I mean, three word ones. I remember emailing him when um, there was the discovery of a new planet and I was really excited and he just responded with the words, we'll never get there. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas his letters, these Uh letters he wrote me when I was a child are pages and pages of his handwriting and the ink and that tactility and that uh, trace left behind of his physical body is so, so meaningful. But yeah, I don't write letters the way I used to. I used to write letters a lot, especially because I lived in, in faraway places from my family and people I cared about. But I am a really firm believer in sending postcards, which I do often, and it thrills me. I collect them whenever I go to anywhere new or an exhibition. I always come home with a suitcase full of postcards. Um, And I love receiving them as much as letters. And honestly, it's not really about length. Like you sent me a postcard from your recent trip to France, and it's on my fridge, and it makes me smile every time I open the fridge, because it's just that, that little moment of knowing that somebody's thinking of you and they they just even write it in five words, and then the the image on the front of the card. It's it's such a complete missive. I I just love it. But then you know emails. I do want to wind back about emails because there is something really wonderful about a good email, and the fact that you have it in your pocket wherever you are, right? Like you can just go back through your thing, and and the fact that it's a form of correspondence that is less formal. And actually, what you were saying about feeling it's hard not to kind of be critical of your own prose. I feel like people are much less likely to be pompous in an email than they are in a letter, right? Like there's much less of a a sense of self-consciousness when people write emails. And I think that that actually can open up a really intimate communication between people who might be too shy to start sending each other letters or for whom the letter might feel like too big a statement or too big a commitment. So there's a huge, there's huge value to both forms. But what I what I hate the thought of is that the email would entirely replace the letter or the postcard. You know, I, I want them all in my life. Yeah. I just thinking about emails. Um, apparently Zadie Smith doesn't have a smartphone. She just has like a little, you know, one of those old ones that you have to like press the number four times to get the right letter you want. They call it a burner phone, Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> the kids <laughs> yeah no she told me about that when we um when we when we did the interview yeah but she's a big emailer yeah and and also I love like 
I think in an interview, maybe even in the interview with you, she talked about emailing Sally Rooney. And I just love that yes. idea of Sadie Smith and Sally Rooney emailing each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in the interview. Yeah, I know. But do you think that you come across differently in, in letters, maybe also in emails, let's say, than you do in person? Yeah, for sure. And um, it, you're just talking about pomposity. Like that is my fear that I'm, my writing voice is very different from my speaking voice or the kind of essence of my personality. And that is often what trips me up. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily like, oh, I have to get the right phrase. It's like, is the tone of this right? And I, you know, maybe would use a word that I wouldn't necessarily use in conversation. And then I kind of question myself in that way. So yeah, I think I do actually. And it's, and it's something I would like to break down a bit, although that's to be expected, isn't it? We sound different in all different media. There's no, there's no kind of like ideal of just one way of communicating with the world. And I think trying to get to that place will just tie you up in knots. Yeah, definitely. The medium also draws out different things. Like, you know, on the podcast, we are ourselves, but we're also a performed version of ourselves, right? We're no, hyper aware. No, this, this <laughs> who I am. We're hyper aware of <laughs> listeners, the invisible audience, you know. Yeah. Although I think interestingly with the podcast, like we became much more intimate on the podcast once we stopped being in the studio because of the pandemic. And it shifts how we relate to it when it's us in our own homes with the microphone. It feels like much more of a conversation just between you and me, right? And I think the same the same can be said of email, the same can be said of any communication that's just directly on your phone. You kind of it, it's so immediate and instantaneous. Whereas I think because also these days people write with a pen far less frequently. I mean, I write with a pen a lot because I, it's part of my writing practice, but I notice many people in my life don't use a pen very often at all. So to actually sit down with a pen and paper, you're putting yourself psychologically into a new space immediately, right? Mm. Um, and it's natural that the self that comes out on the page would be performative somehow. But I also think, you know, I used to worry similarly to you about the fear of sounding pompous or stilted but I think writing a diary to bring it back to diaries but I think what helped me let go of that fear was writing so often every day just my stupid tiny little thoughts you know (laughs) because I think you're way less likely to be pompous when you're writing to yourself because eventually you just if you're writing for survival in a way which sometimes I have been you let go and you just end up in the stickiest parts of your own character (laughs) and it's there on the page and then something about that bleeds into all other forms of writing I think what about the fact that today now so much interaction happens in written form like millennials especially I would speak for our generation but I think younger even more so prefer to text or whatsapp or gchat or whatever it is than call and there's like a real reluctance to phone somebody but you and I are the generation that still had to ring people, especially when we were young adults, right? And like do the parental voice like, hello, Mr. Plitt, can I yeah. please Mr. Larry? <laughs> My dad prefers to be called Larry, actually. Oh, Larry. Sorry, Larry. <laughs> Hi, Larry. Can I speak to Carrie? Um, but yeah, like, do you think of WhatsApp correspondence as correspondence? Yeah, I do. But it's very ephemeral, which is different. As in, I'm not really writing it with the idea that somebody would keep it as a keepsake, you know, and return to it years later, or that I would go back and read over what I wrote after the fact. I certainly wouldn't expect it to be published. Um, <laughs> not that my emails are going to be published either, but you you know what I mean. 
And actually, the more I talk about this and think about it, the more it freaks me out that all of my WhatsApp conversations are just in the world um, (laughs) waiting to be searched. So easy to search them. But anyway, yeah, it's definitely correspondence. And maybe it's a mix of correspondence and a conversation. Because when it comes to us, for instance, as as you were saying, we we correspond all the time, usually on WhatsApp. And, you know, it's partially to plan things. It will often, the conversation will often start by saying like, oh, when do you want to do this session or blah, blah, blah. But it's also about our lives and like the deepest things you could possibly be talking about. And it's this amazing conversation that we've been having for years and years and years now. And I love that. Yeah, me too. And it feels so true to life. It's a container for all of it. Like mundane details, planning, fucking scheduling the bane of my life. And then also <laughs> life and death and like how to live and recipes and whatever. I think um I think actually maybe one day, Carrie Play, I will print the whole thing out. <laughs> <laughs> and I will get it bound and I will give it to you as a gift. I would love that. Um, um I would I would not burn that. You would not burn it, but it would be a tombstone, man. It would be absolutely colossal. <laughs> it would be. Very tiny type. Uh, yeah, exactly. Tiny, weeny type. I do think that that is one of my favorite things about texts and WhatsApp messages, that they are just these ongoing conversations. And yeah, I think the same as you. I think of them as a mixture of conversation and, and correspondence because they're definitely written. You know, they are definitely written. Of course, then there's the whole voice note thing, which is a different thing entirely, but the, t- the kinds that are written... But then they also, they're supplemented with this other language, right? The language of photographs and links and images enhanced by emojis if you use them. Like it's it's kind of this whole new way of speaking that is very different from the kind of language you use in an email or in a letter. So it's just layered and layered and layered. And I'm yet to read a really a book that really nails it. I think Dolly Alderton actually got some really brilliant um she really brilliantly echoed the shift in voice in her memoir, Everything I Know About Love, where she had these kind of spoof emails of people being very annoying about their hen parties and yes. things like that. It was very <laughs> funny. And in her novel Ghost as well, she's got some really great WhatsApp conversations that just nail that kind of weirdly awkward dating, WhatsApping kind of thing. I would love to read a contemporary book that like is a deep dive into WhatsApp. I mean, our friend Steve, dear Steve in Canada, Steve and I, when we were much younger, and I think I was still drinking, I had this uh, mad idea to write a joint novel in WhatsApp, <laughs> <laughs> which you'll be glad to know we didn't do. But yeah, maybe I, one day. I would read it, but out of love for you both. You would read it out of uh, deeply tolerant and probably <laughs> mildly amused kind of fascination. Yes, no one else would be interested. <laughs> but I think the other thing about um, WhatsApp that I cannot ever get out of my mind, especially since it was taken over by Facebook, is that it is not a neutral way to communicate, right? Mm. Like it's owned by this tech conglomerate that has become this intermediary of some of our most intimate communication, especially when WhatsApp is used as a kind of erotic tool as well, right? Like in people's deep, deep intimate lives. And in theory, this company has access to our most intimate thoughts as we spill them out to one another all the time. Our work thoughts, our you know, family thoughts, our sex thoughts, whatever. And um and I think about how it affects the way we express ourselves, you know, and how we forget that we are putting ourselves in the hand of a third party. It's not as direct. I mean, of course, when you send a letter, you're putting it in the third party of the postman, but it's, it's just different. Yeah, yeah, it's different. It troubles me sometimes. And then and then I let go of the trouble because I want to use it. Yeah, I same. And I was really thinking about that during that um 
Wagatha Christie trial, the, yeah. <laughs> like Rebecca Vardy's horrible texts about people to her agent just being like public knowledge was excruciating. And I couldn't help but feel bad for her because it's like, of course, we've all said things that we would not want read in, you know, public trial. But the truth is that it could happen. It could happen. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And I also think that when, you know, when there is so much emphasis placed on textual correspondence, you know, it privileges a certain way of being able to express yourself. Like I think about how different it must be if you're very dyslexic or if you're communicating in a language that's not your mother tongue. You know, when I lived in France and Spain, we didn't have smartphones. And so really, I would have been completely up the junction if I'd had to be on WhatsApp in French with my new French friends, you know, whereas it was much more like you used your phone to make a plan and then you met up in person. And I found it much easier to speak another language in front of the other person, right? Yeah. My friend Alice, I'm sure she's okay with me mentioning this because she knows it drives me crazy, but she always wants to talk on the phone. And she's one of those people where you'll text her about something and then she'll call you to discuss it. And horror. It's <laughs> horrible. But, you know, and then we talked about it and she was like, English is my third language. And yeah. it's, and it's re it takes so much mental space for me to be texting with people, whereas I feel so much more comfortable talking. Um, and then I became slightly more tolerant of it. <laughs> <laughs> You're a work in progress, Carrie Plitt. <laughs> <laughs> but what about books? Do you enjoy correspondence in literature? Do you love an epistolary novel? Do you love a nonfiction letter situation? I do. I love I love an epistolary novel. I love a nonfiction letter situation. I love letters and novels. I mean, I think the form has limitations, definitely, but it's an ingenious solution for how to tell a story that could re really be taken straight from life. That's what's so fun, this kind of idea of found documentation of something that's really happened rather than the kind of invention that you need to do when you have a narrator in a book or even in the first person. You know, it's like, unless it's somebody writing in a diary, which we discussed, it's still, there's something kind of like, okay, who is this person? Who, why are they telling me this story? You know, and I think fiction and the novel as a form has been around so long that we don't really, we don't really question that convention anymore, but it is a weird form. And when you can have a, an actual document that you're reading, it sort of makes more sense. There are so many great epistolary novels, you know, from the 18th century that I read in college by people like Fanny Burney, though I admit I have never read Pamela by Samuel Richardson, which is the kind of first great epistolary novel some people say, although also sounds just incredibly dull. It does, um, doesn't it? It sounds super boring. <laughs> yes, yeah, so boring. Sorry to any Pamela heads out there. Yeah. Are there any Pamela heads? I'm a <laughs> Shamala head. <laughs> Uh, which I haven't read either. But anyway, it's like, it's a great way to explore different subjectivities, the space that exists between the things that we say and write to each other. I mean, there are just so many things that come up when, when there are letters and novels. But at the same time, as I said, the form has limitations. You know, I, I always notice in, in novels when like a character is writing a letter or an email to somebody and basically the author has to like they're responding to something that happened, which both of the characters would know about. But of course, the reader doesn't know about it. So they have to be like, yesterday, when we walked together in the park, and that beautiful dog came up to us and licked my face. And then, you know, I 
I tripped over a branch. You know, you would never summarize something that had happened in a letter. Um, and so that kind of takes you out of the, it makes the artifice more clear. Um, that would be a very boring novel, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. It's reminding me of like a sleepless in Seattle type thing. Okay. Yeah. I'm right. Yeah. I'm writing a rom-com. That's right. <laughs> and also, you know, I, I love novels that give us access to characters' minds and that's not as direct when somebody is writing something for the consumption of others. But also, you know, it's not just, there's plenty of correspondence that happens in novels that isn't just a novel of letters. And I think maybe that's my favorite version of the form. Like I love when a letter crops up in a novel. It's always exciting and it always adds something different and new. I'm thinking of like Possession by A.S. Byatt. Uh, Jane Austen has a lot of letters. I already mentioned Sally Rooney, but Sally Rooney, I think, is a great example of a contemporary novelist that uses things like texts and emails to add texture to her fiction. So yeah, I do. I do like it. How about you? Yeah, I think also, as you say, like for me, I, I'm most excited by it when it's a mixture, actually, when the letters are cleverly used to deepen your understanding of a character, but there's also writing that's not just in the letter form. But yeah, like you, I want to go inside the character's mind. So if it's purely epistolary, then as you say, there's limitations. I mean, my favorite novel, which I wang on about all the time, The White Hotel by D.M. Thomas. Mm. It's one that uses that kind of mixed media form. It opens with a poem. You go into kind of more traditional third person novel writing style, and then there's letters. And it just adds this like deep richness to the storytelling. But I think the other thing about epistolary styles is that you can have somebody addressing a recipient who's no longer there. It can introduce an interesting twist or a way of communicating with characters who are outside of the frame. And I was actually about to give an example, but I realized it will be a massive spoiler, so I'm not going to. (laughs) But I am thinking of a novel where someone's writing to someone. I think I know what novel you're thinking of. Who turns out to be dead, yeah. (laughs) But I mean, that's true for nonfiction too. I was thinking, I I love nonfiction that's written in the form of of a letter to someone. So like Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates is addressed to his son. Yeah. Or even like Oscar Wilde's De Profundis is a letter he writes from jail. And, you know, those could have, both of those books could have just been essays, but they're very consciously letters. Absolutely. I mean, I was thinking of Maggie Nelson and The Argonauts, which is sort of addressed to a you in the way that much poetry is. So it's not straightforwardly a letter, but it does address a person out of the frame. And I think it's such a fascinating way of writing. And I was also thinking of Ocean Vuong's novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, which begins as um, with an address to somebody, but then it kind of breaks down into pure poetry in places. And it's a fabulous example of how you can engage with those forms, but you don't have to be constrained by them. Mm. But what about reading letters written by famous or literary people? I know we slightly covered this in another episode, but let's circle back. I'm not a huge reader of literary or celebrity letters. I don't think I own a single collection of them, but I do always find them fascinating when I come across them. You know, of course, they're they're window into the private lives of these writers, even if they're writing to somebody else, it's, you know, a private conversation rather than a public one. And so it, it brings out my inner voyeur. And I was just thinking, okay, where do I come across these letters? And I was thinking, I follow the Instagram account for um, letters of note. 
Oh, yeah. Brilliant. Which, yeah, was started by someone called Sean Usher. It's now spawned a number of books. There's a traveling show where actors read the letters. But I'd, if you don't follow the Instagram account, I'd really recommend it because it just has like snippets of letters that he posts. And they're always so interesting and they're really different from each other. And there was a great one recently from a letter from a naive nin to Henry Miller. Um, and she says to him, you write the worst letters, letters bad enough to estrange anyone. That's what creates distance, not time or a trip. The real distance and separation were always created by your letters. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I love it. <laughs> she was a spicy woman. <laughs> yeah, it's very, I mean, read the rest of it. It's it's incredibly spicy. But how about you? I've always admired Denise Nin. She she really knew her herself and her passions and her desires. I read her diaries when I was probably a bit too young to really understand them. And just she's always been someone I've been like, I'm so not like you, and I wish I was more like you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm like you. I think I always think I'm not that into to these kinds of collections or books or whatever, but whenever I see them, I'm totally fascinated and I want to and I want to read more. So I think maybe it's that I don't want to be into it. Like I'm kind of judging myself for having that prurient interest. I want to be above it or I, it's, it's some kind of weird internal judgment that I think we should just let go of. But, um, mm. you know, they're fascinating, as you say, precisely because they're not meant to be public. <laughs> and so there is that kind of complicated feeling of a violation, right? Which is why I think I, I like to think I don't like them. But I'm thinking particularly of the love letters between Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville West, which I was sent a copy of. There's a collection by Vintage Classics and the good people there sent me a copy of this book, which they reissued with a, a really fantastic introduction by Alison Bechdel. And it's really not the kind of book I would buy for myself, but thank God for wonderful people who sent you books because I was flicking through it again recently. And I was just, I was just incredibly struck by how moving and how consoling it was to read the innermost thoughts of these two women and to be kind of held by their interest in one another. But also, honestly, I think the thing that hit me the most was just all of their insecurities and their little dissatisfactions. Like Virginia's always going on about what a bad day's writing she's had and how sort of neurotic she's feeling about her work. And it's so humanizing. And then on the flip side, this really powerful longing they had for each other. Like there's one which Vita begins with the line, I've something, I'm butchering it slightly, but something like I've been reduced to a thing who wants Virginia. Yeah. It's so powerful. And because it was illicit in certain ways, and you know, and you know that the end of their story was was tragic, right? In that Virginia took her own life. I don't know. There's something very powerful about it. So I find actually maybe I need to re reassess how I feel about it. Also, one of my favorite books of all time is literally called Letters to a Young Poet <laughs> by Rilke. And I go back to that all the goddamn time. I mean, those were not letters that I think, I think that those were letters that neither party would be shocked to find were published because they are about life and living, but they're also about writing and art and making work. And I don't know, maybe, maybe a historian would tell me I'm talking out my ass, but, um, those letters, if you've not read them. I haven't read them. I need to. Oh my God. I'm going to send you a copy. They are just stunning. So there's been an, actually been a new translation, which has a new commentary and translated by Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy, which compared to the old translation that I've had for a long time, sounds so much fresher 
and more contemporary and slightly as often new translations do slightly shifts the meanings of some of the statements in it in a way that's just very exciting especially if you're a language nerd night like me it's really thrilling to see also i would really recommend that you follow the vita and virginia bot on twitter oh my god okay (laughs) (laughs) just has like little snippets from their letters it's it's great oh fabulous that sounds great so we're going to wind it up with a last quick one. Do you have any favorite literary letters that you want to shout out? The one thing I wanted to shout out that we haven't mentioned yet is Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead. Yes, I knew you were going to mention this. And I'm <laughs> of so course I was. Did. I love that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, but this is one of those novels that's a letter to somebody. So it's it's from the Reverend John Ames near the end of his life to his son. and it's just kind of the story of his life. I think it makes you think about how letters can be a really wonderful space for reflection. And I think that's what Ta-Nehisi Coates saw. I think that's what Oscar Wilde saw. Because what the novel, it's about his life, but it's him thinking about the deepest questions, you know, God, faith, goodness, and really the miracle of existence. And it's an incredibly profound novel and it's very beautiful. So I'd really recommend it if you haven't read it. I absolutely second that. And I think mine is just, I want to come back to I Love Dick by Chris Krause, because one of the things I love about that book is that it really foregrounds the question of correspondence and power. You know, like correspondence can be an act of imagination and it can also be an act of domination as well as being about communication and connection. So I think, you know, ask the question, who gets to have the last word in a correspondence? What can be conjured into being by writing? And how that kind of writing isn't the same as a conversation, right? Because your recipient can't interrupt you or talk back immediately or assert themselves. And that's a book that's really about fantasy and desire and the kinds of engine that desire can be created by words and can be created by intentions that are kind of explored in words that can actually take you a long way away from the material reality of another person. And I think that's a fascinating thing to think about. It's a great book. Well, that's it. Lots of food for thought there. And we will be back in a minute with our cultural recommendations. Hi everyone, I'm Octavia back with Carrie and we have some really great cultural recommendations for you this month. It's also been a while since we gave you any of these. so <laughs> It has really been a while. I, I think it was in March when we last gave cultural recommendations. So, yeah. um, And yet it was hard for me to think of what I'd done since March somehow. So I'm living a culturally barren life possibly. Um, but I do have some great ones that I want to recommend. Okay, well what's first up? First is a very, very strong recommendation for the film Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yes! It was written and directed by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, the two Daniels, and it came out in the UK in May. And this was one of those films that just made me so excited about the medium of film and what it is capable of. It's inspired by a lot of things, including video games, but it is utterly, utterly, utterly its own thing. And that is always some of the most exciting art to witness and see. So. 
The film focuses on a woman named Evelyn. She's a Chinese-American immigrant. She runs a laundromat with her husband. They have one child. She is totally dissatisfied with her life. And on top of that, her taxes are being audited by the IRS. But then through a very hilarious device, she becomes aware that she is only one Evelyn in a multiverse of Evelyns. And the fate of the entire multiverse rests upon her, this very sad sack version of Evelyn. That summary doesn't do justice to the film, which is really funny. It's really absurd, filled with action. One of the multiverses, for instance, has just people with hot dog fingers for hands, and we get to see what happens there. But I think the film works because it's, you know, this multiverse adventure, and you do have to be on board with its very quick cuts and incredibly frenetic pace, but also it's a story about family and the lives we choose and the lives we could have lived, which of course is a very easy theme to draw of the idea of a multiverse. And the acting is amazing. Michelle Yeoh is mesmerizing and funny. And you just think, why isn't she the lead in every single film that's ever been made? So I'd really recommend it. I'm so pleased that you talked about it. I'm also laughing because that was going to be my recommendation. Oh, oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. It is honestly the best film I've seen in like forever and ever. And John and I went to see it together and he was saying so rightly, like it's really rare that you see Michelle Yeoh play, play a character who hasn't got her shit together. Like she's normally mm. cast as these like hyper capable, like almost deadly women. And it's, there's something incredible about seeing her in this role where she's really vulnerable and messy and scatty and like complicated. And she just, of course, has this raw talent. It's extraordinary. But also it's very sad. I mean, in the best way, because it's about all parts of life, right? I mean, John and I both left the cinema tear stained. (laughs) But anyway, if I can't have everything everywhere all at once, then I will recommend an exhibition I went to see yesterday actually at the Hayward Gallery in London, which is called In the Black Fantastic. It's on at the moment. I think it's on for a bit longer. So if you're here or if you're planning to pass through London, then really, really don't miss it. It's curated by Echo Eschen, who, among other things, edits Tank magazine. And he wrote this amazing introductory text for the exhibition where he writes how the fantastical, and this is a quote, has nothing to do with escapism, but suggests a refusal to live within the constraints of a society that defines black people as inferior and alien. It's bringing together the fantastical as a mode of being that is politically charged, and it is includes joy, but it also includes anger and frustration and political energy. And I think it kind of brought me back to thinking about conversations we've had about magical realism and the way that it's denigrated within kind of snobby literary circles. And I think it's very easy for people to feel like that about fantastical things. And this show just kind of stands as stands as a rebuttal to all of that way of thinking because the pieces in it, so it's paintings, it's collages, costumes, sculptures, incredible video works, photography, I mean, every medium you could imagine. And some of the artists were names I recognize, like Chris Ophili, Cara Walker, and then there were lots that I'd never heard of before. They're all from the African diaspora, and they're all people whose work embraces science fiction, really, and myth as well, as ways to expose racial injustice, but also to go beyond that to exploring alternative realities and what a different world might look like. And it's very complex, and it's also very simple. The feelings that you take from each piece kind of fill you up, and there's some pieces that have incredible 24 karat gold because they're referencing Egyptian tombs and um, the techniques of of embalming and everything. And some of the video work was the most extraordinary video work I've seen for years. So it, it really 
is just there as an invitation to embrace fantasy as something that can lead to cultural and also creative liberation, maximalist in the most gorgeous way. So yeah, definitely go and be prepared to leave feeling emotional, <laughs> but also inspired. You know, it really, I found it very inspiring. It made me want to dig deeper into everything and make more of everything, if that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Yeah, I think you'd really enjoy it. It's got um, Hugh Locke, who I know you enjoyed so much at the Tate. He's got a room there, which is phenomenal. Yes. What's your second? My second is... Um something that is probably on a lot of people's cultural radar already, but it's Beyonce's new album, Renaissance. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is really about me starting to understand Beyonce. I I am someone who has always admired her, but not always connected with her music. And we were actually talking about this the other day. I, I, I feel like sometimes there's something a little bit distant about her, or maybe she's just too perfect and kind of prefer things a little bit messier. But anyway oh my God, this album is a bit messy and it's so joyful and just exactly what I needed at this moment. And it's it's taking its inspiration from a whole bunch of different kinds of dance music. It just reminded me of the power of music to make us move and lose ourselves and the unique feeling of dancing with other people on a sweaty dance floor. And my favorite track on the album is probably the last one, which is called Summer Renaissance, which is a very unsubtle homage to Donna Summer, like very unsubtle, but also it's incredibly sexy. And there's this drop of a house beat that happens at the same time that Beyonce kind of like growls, you sexy motherfucker, which is just gets me every time it's like dopamine hit to my brain. So yeah, I've... I've really enjoyed it and um, I will be listening to it for the rest of the summer, I think. (laughs) For the rest of my life. (laughs) It's an absolute triumph. I haven't been that excited about an album dropping for, I can't really remember the last time I was that excited about it, actually. Yeah, it's, um, I wasn't excited about it, but then I listened to it and I was like, wow. Yeah. It was a surprise for me. She's Um, really onto something. That's nice. Yeah. What's your last recommendation? Mine is actually a video game, which John got the other day and he got it because he thought I would also enjoy it. And I was a bit like, eh, and no, it's really fun. (laughs) It's called Stray. And I mean, I guess it's kind of the Venn diagram of things I'm interested in. It's about a cat and it's uh, (laughs) about a forgotten city and it's kind of sci-fi and it's just amazing. Um, So it's an adventure game, basically. And oh my God, the opening scenes, this isn't spoiling anything, but you... At the beginning, you're in this kind of halcyon green world with your family, with your your other kittens. And then there's this heartbreaking scene where you get separated from them. And I actually had tears in my eyes, truly. And then you, you're this little ginger cat and you land in this mysterious forgotten city. And you have to untangle its mysteries in order to find your way back to your happy and free time with your friends. And really early on in the game, you make friends with this little drone who can help you out. And it opens up this whole other way of playing. But it's just, honestly, it's so gorgeous to look at. The sets look like you're in a punch drunk production, basically, like flickering neon lights and empty rooms and you can go exploring everything. But I think, honestly, one of the reasons it's had such a powerful effect on me is that the designers have absolutely nailed the way that a cat moves and the things that they do. So you can like run around causing trouble. You can scratch the furniture. You can knock stuff off high places like meow, jump. You can rub up against robots' legs and when you do, their faces turn to hearts. It's adorable. Um, <laughs> but you can also just be kind of a total nuisance. So it's, it's really fun because you're from the cat's perspective 
And it kind of makes you look at the built environment in a different way. Do you know what I mean? And what can I say? I'm also a massive fan of cats. I just, <laughs> so it's a really nice way to spend time sort of thinking that you're a cat. And I find, you know, if I want to relax my brain, but I don't want to get sucked into t- watching TV, it's kind of the perfect level of engagement because you have agency and um, it makes you feel curious because you're exploring this world and it lifts my mood, but it sort of doesn't demand very much of me beyond that. It's kind of perfect. That sounds great. Um, one of the authors we're going to be featuring this fall is um, Gabrielle Zevin, who wrote this book Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And I've just finished reading that. And I felt like it's a novel that really helped me understand the appeal of games. And it has made me a lot more excited to engage like with games like the one that you're talking about. I think you'd really enjoy it. When you come over, we'll we'll have a we'll have a session. I'll let you be the naughty ginger cat. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> it's just very joyful. It's very joyful. <laughs> it's fun. And there's no it's not there's like very mild peril, but it's not really I find the, the games that are all about kind of dark and dangerous worlds. I, I'm anxious enough, thanks. I don't need <laughs> anxious in my leisure time as well. Totally. But yeah, this is not an anxiety inducing game so far. Maybe it all changes when you get further in, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Fiction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. That's right. It really means the world. And we'll be back in a few weeks for a special sponsored episode with none other than the extraordinary Jamaica Kincaid and some Picador designers talking jacket designs. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction. (laughs) 